To live in today's world, you need money, but the majority of people in the world do not have access to it. I'll just let you ponder that existential crisis for a second. I'm David Woodshill, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber. And in today's episode of the Ambition Podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Ellen C., author of Reimagining Financial Inclusion. The formal financial system is taken for granted, but it also represents the barrier to financial inclusion. Airline's book highlights 13 game changers who are thinking outside of the financial box. These organizations are acting on behalf of the excluded people that are unable to live their lives to the fullest. They are seeking to revolutionize the financial sector and aiming for financial inclusion for all. Her book also delivers vital lessons through a framework of five key levers for change in order to reimagine our financial system. Awareness and support for a more sustainable and inclusive world has never been higher. So during the coming 30 minutes, we're going to discuss why financial inclusion is a key element of this global issue facing modern society today. Hello, Erline. Thank you so much for taking the time to to speak to us today for the podcast. I thought it might be useful if we really kicked off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date. Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, where do you start? Well, uh, I'm Dutch. Uh, but my father was born in Indonesia, and uh, maybe that's why uh, uh, he brought me to that region, traveling that region already from a young age. I, I, I started studying industrial engineering and management sciences, and uh, my career I started in the corporate sector, the for-profit sector. So working for all the big Dutch businesses like Philips, KLM, the Dutch railways, but also in the financial sector, ABN AMRO and the ASN, the Rabobank. Well, I got stuck in that career, maybe seven years into it, when I was wondering about the big why, you know, driving a bigger lease car or, yeah, <laughs> generating more money for the pockets, uh, for in the pockets of the shareholders. I really felt my start, uh, felt that my job was starting to feel meaningless. So that's when I was actually born as a social entrepreneur. Maybe in the early 2000s, I co-founded my first social enterprise, Microcredit for Mothers. And that's also when I went back to university again for my master's in Asian studies. And within no time, actually, my professional career also was more and more oriented to uh, what I call impact organizations, right? I don't like to call them non-profits. So that took me to the Banking with the Poor Network. And, and, and more recently, in the past seven years, I've been working with Ashoka, which is uh, the world's largest international network of social entrepreneurs. So, I mean, I think that's super interesting that you talk about the work that you're doing with, with entrepreneurial and social entrepreneurial organizations. Could you just tell me a little bit more about, about that and, and perhaps some of the organizations with whom you've worked? Yeah, so I think... The first uh, social enterprise I uh, founded or co-founded myself was Microcredit for Mothers, really focused on uh, providing everybody, also the poorest of the poor, with a very small amount. You know, everybody diver- deserves the chance to that first euro to start make a living, right, and and make something out of your life. The second one I, I, I co-founded too more recently is Credit for uh, Communities, which is mm-hmm. more focused on providing the evidence that it is also worthwhile to invest in groups. Uh, because, yeah, we are so used to donating, for example, water wells, 
But what if you support a group at the village level, for example, a group of farmers that have been collaborating together uh, uh, to, to irrigate their land uh, with one jointly owned uh, engine, for example. What if that group of five farmers would like to uh, invest in a water irrigation pump powered on solar energy? So none of those individual farmers can pay for such an engine themselves, but the group as a whole can. And, and nobody in our financial system is actually investing in groups. So this uh, latest social enterprise is more focused on proving that groups are also worthwhile to invest in. Well, and, and I think uh, lastly to, to say is that at Ashoka, which is of course a network of social entrepreneurs, I've been working with hundreds of similar social entrepreneurs doing similar issues all across the world, which is super inspiring. And I think that's I think that is really fascinating and inspiring. And I think that when you talk about finance, we think about it in very black and white terms. We think about accounts, we think about investment. And I think that the topic of financial inclusion is one that is fascinating. And I, I think it's amazing that you've you've spent such a huge chunk of your career really focusing in this area. With that in mind, we're here to talk today about your new book, Reimagining Financial Inclusion. Um and I'd just be fascinated to, to find out a little bit more about the themes of the book, who it's aimed towards, and, and, and really sort of what you hope to achieve from, from getting that message out there a little bit wider. Yeah, thanks. Uh, l- let me start with, uh, in the broadest sense, right, financial inclusion means that everybody in the world can make a proper income and has access to financial services so that they can develop to their full potential. Our current form of financial system excludes low-income people who make up actually most of the world's population, right? And this is really fundamentally wrong. But instead of dwelling about how and why this is wrong, I really wanted to show that this can change because extraordinary innovators I just refer to as social entrepreneurs have shown it can be done different. So this book features those so-called game changers and offers a look into their kitchen to learn how they do this. Many of us take the formal financial system for granted, but we need to think outside of the current system to solve the flaws and achieve the financial inclusion. This is what the book is about, how to do that, right? And one of the key ingredients to their recipe of success is collaboration. These innovators often operate more like a network than as one organization. So these two elements, the -the out-of-the-box system-changing innovations in that space of financial inclusion, but also the mind-boggling new ways of organizing, they shape the main themes of the book. And therefore, the target audience would be Well, of course, the traditional financial sector to learn, right? But also impact investors, corporates, especially their foundations and their CSR and venture arms. But obviously, the the whole social entrepreneurship sector too, right? I mean, I just want to pick up on some of the things that you said there, because I think that it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I think that 
when we talk about the new ways of doing business and social entrepreneurship, it, it, it's such a wide net. We're talking about social mobility. We're talking about upward mobility. We're talking about investment. We're talking about collaboration and networking. And these are all really, really exciting emerging ideas. And I, I think it's important that everyone should know about these and be considering these in their business models. However, in saying that, we still do have a very old school um, way of considering finance, where when you think about you know, organizations and building organizations, you think about yourself and you think about profit and you think about, you know, investing in um, profitable growing businesses. So I imagine those to be blocks or challenges when thinking about financial inclusion. And I was just really wondering if you could talk about why you think that finance isn't currently as inclusive as what it could be and what the challenges there are. Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, there's a whole chunk that we need to change when it comes to traditional finance and and uh, uh, the chain of finance, right? So I think the emergence of a whole new sector of impact investors, which is actually a segment in between the donation, the old school donation sector and the highly profitable uh, banking investment sector, uh, that's a big chunk of that. I think for for me personally, as a person where my personal passion goes, I'm more fascinated by the fact that uh, it's somehow we built a system and the low-income people are not included in that system. So for if, if I, I may uh, elaborate a little bit more on that uh, part of the exclusion, right? I would say that it's unfair and it should change that the financial system excludes billions of people, right? I think when you talk about the large uh, number of people, that's the largest number, that number of people that is excluded from the financial system. So let's focus on that one, right? So half of the world's population, and therefore I repeat, does not have the access to financial products and services as we, usually the listeners to this podcast, are having right the other half of the population to make something out of your life I, I and i'm talking about those low-income families that do make a modest living but they save by putting their money under the mattress right they they invest by buying golden bangles or a cow they spread risk across support networks of families and friends. So they do all those stuff but they do it without formal financial services and that's ridiculous because they do not have access to a bank account or credit cards or insurances for health or for business-related risks. So I'm not even talking about access to a pension, right, for protecting them for old age, poverty, or a mortgage. When your son marries in India, you need to build an additional room for your home and you would like to get some uh, additional financial support for that. So when the system as a whole does not serve half of the world population with the basic needs, right, with financial services, it's very safe to say that our financial system we have built is not inclusive. So then I suppose considering the other side of the spectrum, for your book, you spoke to 13 game changers or impact leaders who are making a difference, who are um, adopting these inclusive um, models of of social entrepreneurship and, and and finance. How did you find and choose these individuals? What sort of makes them stand out to you? 
Yeah, well, like I said, in the in the, in the past decade at Ashoka, but also with the banking, with the poor network, I've been exposed and I was very privileged to really work with hundreds of those game changers. So many of them were all, all, were revolutionizing the finance industry too. So it's it's uh, the unique characteristic, if you would ask me, the USP, so to say, of the game changers <laughs> that I selected to feature in this book is, is in fact that they do not take that system for granted, right? I just talked about the system. They are really strong visionaries when it comes to what it takes to change it, the system. The main ingredient for being selected as a game changer is that you have this proven solution. There is already a financial innovation that they have put in place, and that, but it has the potential to really change way beyond the boundaries of their own organization. So none of those game changers that are featured are, are, are building social ventures. They are solving an issue at the, at the root causes, right? And that's a totally different ball game to change the system for the good of all. It requires a vision, a, a, a view of the whole system they operate in, and an approach that really aims to solve that issue together with others. None of those game changers is envisioning the change of the whole system to do that all by themselves. They really acknowledge that you need to work in an ecosystem together with the others to make the required change in the whole system as to include the low-income people at a real large scale, right? And this way of working is so radically different to what we call business as usual Yeah. that I ended up writing a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> And with that in mind, your book starts with five key lessons for change in financial inclusion. Now, without giving too much away, because I do think it's very important that our listeners read the book for themselves. But could you give us a little bit of insight into what the five lessons are? Yeah. Well, after working with these game changers and distilling the similarities of their work and spotting the differences, right, I, I started to notice that that you can sort of distill five levers that they alter, maybe not all of them together. Some pick three, others pick uh, two, but, you know, basically they're all working on those five levers. But, but let me demonstrate them with uh, an example, okay? Sure. So Pinbox, for example, Pinbox Solution, that's not in the book, but it's similar to the game changes in the book. It's co-founded by Kartan and after a decade of piloting different kind of micro pension like solutions to to solve the old age poverty in india uh, it resulted in a national micro pension scheme for non salaried workers such as the day laborers for example now this pension in a box solution is currently offered on a platform which is co-founded by this Gautam. and it accompanied with old age saving educational services, but also papers and evidence that support and help uh, to lobby for policy change, uh, for, for example. Well, if you take this example, I can demonstrate the different levers, right? So the first lever is to make sure that everybody plays. And this one is crystal clear in this solution, right? This financial innovation, so to say, aims to have all the people also the ones without a labor contract, but with modest but often irregular income, a safe place to save for their old age. This lever 
consists of two parts. Not only the fact that you have to knock on all doors, right? Everybody's door. Not only the men who have formal jobs, but also women or the non-salary worker. So to do this, you also need to empower partners. The partners that transact with the low-income people. This is the second part of this lever. So through the platform of the pin box, groups of partners in other countries, governments, international financial institutions, employers, they can now join efforts and launch such a similar pension scheme, micro-pension scheme for these people in their country too. So in that way, Pinbox is actually uh, uh, empowering everybody to play, not just knocking on all doors, but also empowering partners to knock to help knocking on all doors, so to say. Well, that will be the first lever, right? The second one is to assure that we offer monetary services when and where basic needs of the people arise. I think it's, uh, it's fair to say that the daily life should be the playground. That's the second lever. This means that offering a guarantee to insure your crop, for example, should happen at the place where a farmer buys the fertilizer and the seeds when they start their planting season. That's the examples of what I mean with bringing it into the daily life of the low-income people or illustrating it with the pin box example, offering a micro-pension in such a way that people can save small amounts in erratic intervals, which is totally different from the current pension schemes we all know. Well, to do so, it is really required to offer these financial services integrated with the fulfillment of the daily needs of the low-income people. And that's the third lever, to integrate pension savings in daily life attached to the fulfillment of their daily needs, you often need to collaborate with other partners in the whole value chain, insurers, microfinance institutions, uh, the seed shops, for example. So I have named those this third lever linking all players. In all of the game changers in the book, you will see that they take a role of supply chain coordinator of network integrator, just with one goal to be able to offer the financial services to the low-income people in such a way that it is close to their home and it can be helpful uh, when fulfilling their daily needs, right? So building this last-mile infrastructure all the way into their villages and homes. So the fourth one is a little bit more complicated. Let me, in many places where low-income people live, you will see that they team up to get things done. So they jointly dig a well for clean water or farmers sharing one diesel motor, the example I mentioned earlier, to irrigate their land. So the power of this group, speaking the same language, knowing the neighborhood, vouching for each other, that is a, is a very strong force for good. And, but it's actually not taken into account in our formal financial system, not at all, which is... <laughs> The, the final financial system we are currently having is mainly based upon very static demographic data, nothing at all close to behavioral data and, and social structures and uh, the dynamics of uh, social interaction. But many of the solutions of the game changers in the book, they tap into this unique characteristics of a group, a community. 
their solution, empower them to play as a group. For example, a health scheme in India again, that empowers close to a million of people in the, the very most remote settings to have access to a doctor or a health professional, to ask questions uh, when uh, your child starts to cough or uh, you want to stay healthy, that teaches the community members themselves to govern their own health insurance scheme. That's really where the power of the community lies. So like we did in the microfinance sector with the self-help groups, I think tapping into this informal mechanisms in the group, uh, in, in the communities, in the villages, that is really where the opportunity lies going forward for financial inclusion. Which brings me actually to the last and the fifth lever, which is called changing the rules of the game. It's very important for those solutions to take off, right? To that rules and regulations that currently still exist are changed. Because often uh, rules and, uh, and regulations were built to protect people and institutions back in the days, but they have become obsolete, obsolete in the meantime. So they are no longer needed or our technology uh, gives the opportunity uh, to do things more efficient. And, and, and uh, so you don't need rules based on address uh, uh, checking, for example. So uh, sometimes it is not a regulation, but it's as simple as, a, as an old assumption in industry, for example. So they, the, in, uh, the insurance industry, for example, preaches for decades now that investing in prevention does not have a business case. Poor people are simple, are simply not able or not willing to pay for insurances. Well, one of the cases in the book uh, demonstrates that uh, they are able to reach 25 million first-time buyers of insurances in nearly 15 countries in less than five years, or a little over five years, to be honest. That's a clear-cut case that it is possible, right? So I think it's part of, uh, part of it is changing. Part of changing the rules is also that we go into another mindset uh, and 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 get rid of old assumptions, which is more implicit rules. Well, let me stop there. I think this is a quick <laughs> summary of the five levers. <laughs> I mean, that was an amazing summary of the five levers. Thank you very much. There's just one one thing I'd like to pick up on, I think, from, from what you were saying. So a lot of a, a lot of the ideas that you discuss in the book and the levers, to me, make a lot of sense. And it, it, it's very clear how social entrepreneurs and, and companies that are agile and innovative and creative can easily adopt these and, and, you know, with a little bit of a culture shift, you know, carry out the work that you're discussing. But when we talk about regulation and institutionalization, my mind goes towards larger, more established organizations that have lots of internal rules and bureaucracy and a way of doing things. So how can these organizations um, really make an impact in this in this sort of area of financial inclusion as well? How can change start from within in, in more sort of established and, and um, for want of a better word, archaic brands? Yeah, it's interesting. So you you, you mentioned a couple of of uh, uh, yeah small, large, established organization, uh, innovative startup ish kind of companies, right? So uh, I think yeah, it has three fascinating matters related to your question, right? I, I think 
all the game changes as, as featured in the book are extremely entrepreneurial. I think that's important to mention, right? They, they don't stop enterprising till the issue is solved. Many of them are what we call serial social entrepreneurs, right? So uh, secondly, next to being entrepreneurial, they are also super well-versed in collaboration. They see the bigger picture, right? And their vision is so contagious that other partners want to join and they contribute to that to their bigger uh, mission right so by no means do they aim to do this all alone so some of them are small but others like the be my example i just mentioned uh, reaching 25 million people are are large international companies are alone so I, i i think that answers the question whether you need to be big or small but i think that's less important what's important is that there is a vision and and a sort of a leadership that they bring. At Ashoka, we call this system leadership, right? That it is required to change the game. And this system leadership is what makes them build teams, whether that's in their organization, the social ventures, as you will, or outside. But they build the team and they equip them all with this unique collaboration skill. So their organizations start to work more as an ecosystem builder, as operator of the full network right and that's different from the regular old school organ organization right and the 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 key difference here is that they do not focus on building an organization they focus on scaling their impact so financial inclusion is in this case the impact they want to make but uh, it's it's not merely just to grow their own organization it's really envisioning that uh, financial inclusion is done by everybody, not just them, but also the established organization. I think that's key to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, more key to it than large organization or small organization. And then there's the third part maybe of the answer, the leaders themselves, the founders and, and, and their organizations following them um they do not they do wish to change the game but they do not wish to do that alone they acknowledge from the start that they need the established organization to scale the impact uh, to include all of us in the end right so if they they know that if the established organizations do not change the way they operate nowadays that we won't be able to reach full financial inclusion for all so uh, and i think that the fact that those game changers are fully aware of that and the fact that they included in their mission that they need to get the established organization with them to tag along in their approach uh, is what makes them the real game changers so all partners, established organizations, and new, they are all appetized by those game changes to take on their solutions or the learnings uh, of the, uh, on the journey to develop those solutions and run with it. And that's how they see that their impact is scaling in collaboration with the established players in the industry. So in short, all of us can contribute to this change, right? To reach financial inclusion, even more so all of us are really needed. Financial inclusion is not just for banks and insurance. It's for all of us to contribute. I love that. And that makes a lot of sense to me as well. We've talked a little bit about your organization, Ashoka, and I'd just be interested as we as we sort of wrap up the interview to, to find out a little bit more about your role and, and, and what you do at the organization yourself. 
Yeah, at Ashoka, I mainly work with blue chip companies, right? And social innovators as featured in the book. We connect the challenges of the corporates to become more or stay relevant or become more relevant to society with the opportunities that the game changers collaboration with the game changers offer to make a positive impact. So for the innovators, this often means that they gain access to a certain uh, specific expertise or a global market. And for the big businesses, this means that they can grow their entrepreneurial mindset and get exposure to innovations and new business models. They learn how to grow their contribution to society. And this is what we call at Ashoka, growing your potential as a company to become a real change maker yourself, which is really much needed in these days, if you ask me, where we roll from one crisis into the other, from climate to corona and the other way around. all relates to a certain level of inequality and that needs to be corrected, right? This inequality. Financial inclusion is super important for this. And big companies better hurry up and catch up to stay relevant in relevant <laughs> society of today. <laughs> I mean, I think that brings me quite nicely to, to my last question, which, which isn't an easy one. I'm sorry about that in advance. But if if someone is listening to this podcast and they're working in an organization or they're studying at business school and they think, right, what she's saying really resonates with me and I would like to to think about being more inclusive and uh, and being more part of this movement. What would your advice be to them for a first step? Yeah, well, of course, reading the book, that helps, or maybe some of the adjoining Absolutely. blogs are easier to digest. No, just kidding. But yeah, no, I do mean it when I say that all of us, wherever we are, in what role we act, we can contribute to the growth of financial inclusion either as a consumer, right? Be alert when you buy stuff and start only, uh, you should start only buying or purchasing your products that pay a decent wage and and fair wage to also the people that contribute to the product, right? The ones who dig the ingredients from the mines or the ones that produce the sugar or the coffee beans. So that's a certain awareness everybody of us can take uh, in your own consumption behavior. But as a professional, for example, whether it's uh, uh, with contributing through your research, right, or with your team's expertise, or maybe with your funds, if you're closer to the, that, uh, that side, uh, but also uh, in the supply chain of your company, you name it, you can contribute and, and you should. We are all needed. Eh? I, I already told you that. To, uh, there's too many people excluded still. And, and, and it starts with knowing, I mean, we think of the system as something outside of us, but that's not the case. We are the system, right? And uh, I know that most people feel so small as opposed to this big, huge system that we can change. I, I would say if you think you are too small to make a difference, then just try sleeping with a mosquito in your bedroom. <laughs> you're never to snow <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much Erline for taking the time to, to speak to me today and, and, and more to the point thank you for writing this book I think it's a really fascinating topic and I think it's set to make waves um, certainly with our listeners and in the wider arena so I can't wait to find out what happens next thank you again for taking the time to speak to us thank you
and Erlene's book, Reimagining Financial Inclusion, Tackling the Flaws of Our Formal Financial System, is available now from all good book retailers. You can also find a variety of articles on financial inclusion, sustainability, and other ethical topics on the Ambition website at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.